This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture reading today is Isaiah 62, verses 6 through 12, found on page 621 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah 62, starting in verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall not be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary." Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken." Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, let's pray and we'll dive into the text together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus uh, because of the gift that we have in him. Lord, we have nothing lest you give it to us. We have no hope. We have no future. We have no right to be even uh, bold to come and speak to you, lest you make a way for us. God, so we thank you this morning for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that he has been raised again. We thank you that he is seated right now at your right hand and that we have a new and living way by which we can enter into the most holy place and come before you, receive from you, call upon you. So Lord, this morning, I ask that you would strengthen us, Lord, for For those who are yours in this room, I ask that you would fill our hearts with faith and certainty of who you are and what you've promised. God, for those in this room who are not yours, who do not call upon your name, who do not look to you in faith, this morning I ask that you would open their eyes to see um, the majesty that you possess in yourself, their need their desperate plight before you? And would you show Jesus the merciful one in whom we have life? God, would you give us a spirit of revelation as we come to this text this morning? Would you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, make us soft to your word? Would you make us receptive to your word? God, would you let your word accomplish its work in and among us, we ask? In Jesus' name and for his glory, 
Amen. Hey, so we're in the uh, second week uh, of our time in Isaiah 62. Last week, if you weren't here, uh, we, we looked at the first five verses of this chapter where God demonstrates two things for us. First, he demonstrates or declares his unceasing commitment to work for the sake of his people, bringing redemption and restoration and transformation uh, to them through his gift of salvation. And then he declares to his people, the one who he is bringing into his family and saving in and through his work, he declares to them his unending delight or desire for them. To rightly understand the verses that we heard read this morning and we're going to look at, uh, we need to remember what is happening in those five verses. So I'm going to take a few minutes to orient us, to look at what we did last week in order to highlight and better understand where we're at. So Isaiah 62 begins with a declaration. It begins with a declaration of God's commitment to work on behalf of his people. Look with me at 62 verse one. The Lord says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Now I want you to make a mental note of that verse. Just keep it ringing in the back of your mind uh, as we come into our text today. The Lord begins this section of scripture by declaring that he is about something. He is at work accomplishing something. And that work, he will not be silent. He will not cease. He won't be quiet until it is done. He's declaring that he has this unceasing commitment to see his work finished. We see that at the beginning. The language itself is important as God declares that he will not be silent and he will not be quiet until he accomplishes the fulfillment of his work. And he shows what the fulfillment of his work is. It's to make his people righteous. Their righteousness will burn like a blazing torch for all to see. It's to bring whole transformation to them so much so that their identity is now different and he gives them a new name. Where they once were forsaken, now they are called, my delight is in them. God works this beautiful wholesale transformation to take those who were wretched and broken and sinful and rebellious and work in order to bring salvation to them, that they would be redeemed and welcomed and restored into God's presence. So we see the work to make them righteous, to transform them, and then this picture that he has of working toward this beautification of them so much so that they will become like a prized possession that he holds up in his hand for all to see. The Lord then demonstrates that he's doing all of this. All of this work is done because he has set his delight upon his people. Look with me at verse four. He said he's done all these things. This is what he's at work to accomplish for the Lord delights in you. And as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
So coming to this portion of Isaiah 62, verses 6 to 12, what we're going to see today is that in light of all of these beautiful and precious promises, we see two particular responses, two responses that are set forward in light of God's commitment, his unending, unyielding commitment to bring forth his work of salvation, his work of redemption, his work of restoration, his work of transformation. One of these responses is a promise of what God is going to do. I love it. It's not even an exhortation. It's a promise. God says, I am going to do this. One of the ways that people respond is because God says, I'm going to make it happen. I love this. And the second is an exhortation that we're given. The first is the promise that God makes related to raising up people who will put him in remembrance. And we'll talk about what that means. And the second is an exhortation for the people of God to act in response to the certainty of God's promises. What we see here is the reality is there is a necessity bound up in God's declaration of his commitment to fulfill his promises. There is a necessity to respond even in the midst of what we've called the waiting period. And we've talked about that a lot as we've been in this section of Isaiah. We find ourselves as God's people living between two times. We live in the days when we've seen God fulfill his promises in the life, in the ministry, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. And we yet wait for the day when those promises will be fully manifest, fully experienced, fully consummated. And so in that waiting period, there is instruction for us in this text as to what response to the certainty of God's promises looks like in our lives. And the two responses are this. This is going to be what we spend our time with this morning. The first response is a persistent intercession, a persistent intercession. And the second is a prepared life. So this is how we're going to move through the text this morning. We're going to look at these two responses. We're going to spend most of our time in the first one. But the first response for us, a persistent intercession. Look with me. I'm going to read verses six and seven. So in light of all of these promises, again, God is promising to bring full and final and complete salvation for his people. Those who will turn to him by faith, he promises that he will not stop until his purposes are accomplished and there is full restoration and redemption. In light of that, he breaks in and says this, verse six, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. So the first response we see in light of the certainty of God's promises is that his people are, or, uh, sorry, the certainty of God's work, what we see is God promising to do something himself. Again, we see this first person speaker break in. 
having shown that the delight of God is in his people and that he would continue to work until the day when their righteousness burns like a torch, now he declares that he will set watchmen who will work and respond and uh, relate to him in a particular way. There is a function that these watchmen are given as he says, I am going to set them. So in order to understand the nature of this promise, it's important for us to identify exactly who these watchmen are and what they're doing, right? The, the imagery might not be abundantly clear to us just in the first reading. So who are these watchmen and what are they called to do? I want you to look at in these verses several clues as we try to understand who these people are. Right? God says, in light of these precious promises, in light of these beautiful things that I've said I'm going to do and I am committed to do, I'm going to set a group of people with a particular function. And he identifies aspects of what they're doing that I think are helpful for us as we seek to interpret who they are. I'm going to give you four things, four things to see from these, these verses that help us bring identification to who these watchmen are and what they're doing. First, I want you to notice that there is a, uh, they are called to do something all day and all night, right? There is a perpetual and consistent function that this group of people plays in the economy of God, right? We see in verse six, I've set watchmen on your walls all day and all night, that's, that's the, the, the scope of what they're doing, right? There's a perpetual, consistent nature to their function and their task. That's the first thing. The second thing is we see what they are doing. What they are doing, they are to not be silent. God tells them all day, all night, don't be silent. Don't be quiet. Now, what does this sound like to you? It sounds like what we heard God say about himself in verse one, right? These watchmen are to take on some aspect of God's own commitment and God's own zeal for the fulfillment of his promises, right? So these watchmen are told, hey, day and night, don't be silent, God's earlier said, for Zion's sake, I won't be silent. I won't be quiet. And then part of that demonstration of my commitment is I'm going to set people all day and all night who won't be silent. They will take on some aspect of the commitment and the zeal of God for the fulfillment of his purposes. That's the second thing I want you to see. They're doing something perpetually. They are fulfilling or participating at, in some measure in this kind of commitment that God has for his purposes. The third thing I want you to see is they are given another way of identifying who they are in these verses as well. They're first called watchmen set on the walls. Then they're given another name. Look at the end of verse six. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Right? They're given a different identity. They're watchmen set on the walls, and they're those who put the Lord in remembrance. 
Now we're gonna just take note of this here and come back to it later because I think it's really important. But suffice to say, these aren't simply military guards watching over the city. That becomes pretty clear uh, from the jump, right? He's, he's saying, I'm gonna set a type of watchman on your walls that are going to not be quiet. They're going to do something day and night and I'm going to identify them as the ones who put me in remembrance, God says. So these aren't just military guards that are watching for foreign armies as you would in ancient cities. They're people who spend their energy doing something, putting the Lord in remembrance. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing that I want you to see here I want you to notice that these watchmen are to continue in this function in the same time frame as the Lord said he would be committed to his work. Look with me here in verse seven. The ones that put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until, look at that word until, until he establishes Jerusalem. Now let your eyes go back up to verse one. For Zion's sake, I won't keep silent and I will not be quiet until her righteousness burns, right? So God says this group of people is going to be set in this place in the same time frame with the same uh, outcome as my commitment to my work. They are going to do this until my work is accomplished, So there's several interpretations that people give as to who these watchmen are. Some people will say that the fulfillment of this promise is when Nehemiah brings exiles back to Jerusalem, God says, I'll put people that watch over the city that will make sure the city walls get built and the city gets renewed. And that's the fulfillment, right? I'm going to protect you guys as you're rebuilding the city. Potentially. Second, some people interpret this as angels, actually, uh, that God will set angelic beings around his purposes. And the, the imagery here would then be God is so committed to his purposes that even if he could forget, which he can't, is the point. But even if he could, he has people in his heavenly court who will remind him of the things that he's promised to do so he could never forget. It's like emphasizing his unending commitment further. However, I think the most likely interpretation of this person or these people are people that the Lord will set in place who love his purposes love his promises and are committed to continually asking him to fulfill them in the place of prayer. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 130. We have a similar picture put out for us at the, uh, the hand of the psalmist in Psalm 130. We see this psalmist utilize a similar picture of a heart that attentively waits for the fulfillment of God's promises The picture is of a soul that's been captured by the certainty of the promises of God in the midst of the period of waiting and sets themselves like a watchman on the tower of a city, waiting for the promises of God to arrive like the dawn. We see that in Psalm 130 verses five and six. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. 
my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And what the psalmist is painting a picture of is this anticipation and this certitude in the heart that's been awakened by the promises of God that in the midst of the proverbial night of waiting, they look across the horizon, leaning toward God's fulfillment and with eager anticipation, put all of their hope in God's word. That's, that's the picture that we have here. And I think that's what Isaiah's picking up. He's saying, there will be this, this people that I set, that I work to put them in their place, that they will take up my purposes, my promises, my character, my attributes, and they will not rest. They will keep putting me in remembrance until I fulfill them. Like watchmen that stand on the city walls and look out across the horizon, waiting for the morning to break in, these people will stand in the midst of the waiting of this world so steady in the promises of God that they lean forward, waiting for him and longing for him to break in with his saving power and his goodness. So here God says that part of his purpose as he works to bring about righteousness and transformation for his people will be to set watchmen in the place who will be apprehended by the truth of God's promises, who will not be silent, who will not rest, who will not stop reminding him of the things that he's promised until he fulfills them. This is part of the identity of God's people. We looked at this a few months back when we were in Isaiah 56. Earlier in this section of Isaiah, the Lord declared over his people part of the identity of who they are. He gave them a name. He said, my people will be a house of prayer. This promise is giving shape to many of my own prayers for us in this season. I long to see God increase among us the, the water levels, so to speak, of our certainty in the promises of God. The places where we have become convinced of God's nature, we've become convinced of his purposes and his promises. And because of his work in us, because we've tasted and we've seen and we've experienced the goodness that he has for us, outside of our deserving of it, that that would awaken in us this certainty that we would ask him to do what only he can do until we see him do it. So what does it mean here to put God in remembrance? What does it mean to be set in a place day and night without being silent, without resting, putting God in remembrance. I think it comes down to two things. It's actually not that complicated. And it's one of those things in our lives where we, we hear the truth of it and we go, man, it's probably gotta be more than that, right? It's gotta be, it's gotta be fancier than that. Like that sounds really simple. Now the problem is it's really, really, really easy to grasp it's easy to lay hold of. 
it's really, really costly and difficult and contrary to our own natures to do this, right? So let me just give you the two realities of what it means to put God in remembrance. First is we put God in remembrance by reminding him of his character, his character. This is what you could call worship. Worship is agreeing with the truth of how and who God has identified himself to be. He's revealed himself to be. So if God declares to us, I am good, right? Worship is in the place where in my life and in my experience, the circumstances I'm walking through, everything around me presses down on me to try to tempt me that God is not good. Right? I've been abandoned here. I'm forgotten here. There's no hope for me here. Where is God? Right? In that place, reminding God or bringing God into remembrance would be to stand there and look to him and say, regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of how I can make sense of it, how I can put all the dots together, your word declares you are good. Your word declares you are good. So I will put myself in the place of doubting my ability to make sense of this. And I will bank all of my hope on your truth as you've revealed it. That's putting God in remembrance, right? And you do that all over the place with how God's revealed himself. He's revealed himself to be merciful, or revealed himself to be faithful in the places where you are tempted to doubt, tempted to draw back, tempted to not believe. Take the truth of God's word as he has revealed himself and say, you are good. This is who you are. Whether I can perceive it, make sense of it, put my mind around it right now, it is what is true. I line myself up with that, not let uh, my own perceptions dictate how I live in this moment, right? So that's one way we put him in remembrance. We put him in remembrance by reminding him of who he is, how he has revealed himself. The second way we do this is by reminding him of his promises, Reminding him of his promises. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, meaning if, if God has worked salvation for you by awakening your heart to put your faith in Jesus, in spite of what you have done, in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, you turn to him and hope in him alone. If you are in Christ Jesus, the word of God says the promises of God for you are yes and amen in Christ, right? So you come across the promises of God, you get to stand and say, this is what you said you would do. Would you fulfill it? That's putting God in remembrance, Putting God in remembrance is aligning ourselves with who he's revealed himself to be and aligning ourselves with his promises. 
That's what it means to put him in remembrance. This is a means that God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. I find this unbelievable, right? God can do anything he wants. He could order his creation any way he wanted to. He ordained the means or a means to accomplish his purpose in aligning his people to come before him and go, this is who you said you are. Would you be who you said you are? And would you do what you said you would do? He loves for his people to be so desperate for the truth of his character and the promises of his heart to be manifest in the world that they will give themselves no rest. And they will not be silent reminding him of all that he's promised to do. He doesn't grow tired of our asking. I mean, look at this. God says this, verse six into verse seven. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. He actually tells you, hey, I will not tire of you coming to me and asking me to be who I said I am and do what I said I would do. I love it, he says. It's not like uh, 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 an earthly father that we may perceive as like not having enough time or disappointed or too busy. He says, hey, people, be so caught up with the truth and the certainty of who I say I am and what I said I would do that you continue to come to me. I will not grow tired of it. Don't give me any rest. Don't let up. I mean, can you even get your mind around that? God, our father, says, I am going to, one of the ways I am going to demonstrate my commitment to accomplishing my works is I am so going to engender confidence in me among my people that they will continually come to me and ask me to do what I said I would do. It's one of the ways he demonstrates his commitment. That's unbelievable. I want you to look at two passages in Luke's gospel this morning that demonstrate this for us front and center. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask him, hey, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And I think it's amazing because what Jesus does here is he begins with the Lord's prayer, which is the content of praying, right? He gives them some content. He says, pray like this, but he doesn't stop with the content. Jesus goes on to tell a parable that is to incite in us a persistence in the posture of how we come to him. He doesn't just say, hey, pray to me like this. Go through this rote prayer and regurgitate this once in a while and you're good to go. He says, hey, this content will shape how you think about me, how you think about my purposes, how you think about what I'm doing in the world. But I also want you to take on this kind of posture toward me when you come. 
Start in verse 5. And he says to them, after he's laid out the content, which of you has a friend and will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Meaning, because he doesn't have any shame in asking. He doesn't have any shame in coming and asking and petitioning this friend at a late hour, going and, I mean, thinking, how many times do you not ask somebody to do something because you're afraid it will put them out? Right? We all feel this. Jesus is saying, this guy has no shame in asking. My youngest son, we have a joke about this. I didn't do it in the first service because he's in it. And he actually, he really likes it though. No, it's, it's a different reason. It's not because he's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be like, when I'm talking about this, he actually leans over to my wife and goes, that's me. Um, there's this running joke in our family that the kid literally has zero shame when it comes to asking. Dad, can I have a cookie? Dad, can I have a piece of cake? Dad, can I have this? It's like, you've already had seven today. Then we, no, 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 no. Then if you say yes, can I have a cookie? Yeah, you can have a cookie. Can I have two? Without fail. Hey, Jesus is saying, ask me like that. He's saying, ask me like that. Come to me and go, hey, can I have more of your mercy? I see my need. I see my deficiencies. I see my sin. God, can I have your grace where I fall short of your glory yet again, where I failed yet again? Can I have more of your grace? Can I have more of your power? Can I have more of your life? Can I experience your love? Oh, thank you. Can I have more? Can I have another one? Can I please have more of your presence, your power, your nearness, your goodness? Can I have it? He goes, that's what I want you to ask me like. Not just, here's the content, get it done, check the box, and move on. He says, show up like a friend in the most uh, intrusive times without shame and ask me again and again and again. And when I say yes, say, could I have two? He invites us into that. That's what he's getting at here. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. He says, don't be afraid to bug me. I actually want it. I want it. Turn back a couple more to Luke 18. This is a parable that Jesus tells about the situation or the time between his comings. He says, this is what it's going to be like in Luke 17. He says, it's going to be wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and uncertainties and brother against brother and all sorts of chaos. And into that, he speaks a parable of how he invites his people to relate to him. Verse one, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the point of this parable is to produce a persistence in us toward 
coming to God and asking him to do what he's promised to do. And we actually see in this parable, I wish I had a long time to talk about this, but we see in this parable this uh, built-in thing that Jesus is warning us of, whether we're aware of it or not. He says, hey, there's going to be something about the, the difficulty of the time when after I ascend to the Father and before I come again, there's going to be something difficult about that time where there's going to be a delay between the asking and the receiving at times. And what you are going to be tempted to do in that moment is to lose heart. You're going to be tempted to lose heart. And what losing heart means is giving into despair. Despair is the belief that nothing is ever going to change. It's going to be the temptation to draw back, to protect yourself, to hedge your bets, whatever, whatever those things are. That's what losing heart means. He says, what I want from this is to invoke in you a type of certainty and a type of faith in my nature and in my commitment to my promises that you pray and you don't lose heart in it. He said, verse two, in a certain city, there was a judge who didn't fear God and he didn't respect man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, and he has this unbelievable moment of self-revelation where he says, hey, I don't lo- I, I, I'm not into God and I don't like people, but this widow is bothering me. She's just a bother. And so that she doesn't just beat me down into a pulp, I'm going to give her what she wants. Don't get the wrong idea. I'm not like nice or something all of a sudden. And God speaks here. He says, will not God give justice to his elect, verse seven, who cry to him day and night? What Jesus is doing is using a pretty well-known rhetorical device. He's saying, hey, if there was this wicked person who only answered because he was bothered by the persistence of this person, will not God your father who loves you and cares for you and gave of his only son. That's what Paul gets at in Romans 5. He who did not spare his only son. You want to know the disposition of God towards you. The one that didn't spare his only son that you could have life. How much more when you persistently come and ask him for things, will he be receptive to you? How much more will he not give justice to his elect that cry day and night? He says, absolutely he will. He will bring them justice. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he's not saying, will he find people who believe something to be true by like being able to check the boxes. He says, faith, this kind of faith that they are so desperate for my promises to be made known, my salvation to be worked out, that they keep coming and asking me to do it no matter what. So what do we need to grow in the certainty of the promises of God in this kind of place as we, as we seek to have this kind of certainty and faith built in us? I want to give you 
three things really quickly. I'm not going to be able to develop them very much, but I want to put three tools in your hands as we kind of look at what it might be like to embody this response, this response of laying hold of God's promises and asking him to do them. The first thing that, that you could do that, that we need to do is fill our minds with the word of God. How do you know how to put God in remembrance? You take what he's revealed about himself. This is who he is and this is what he's promised to do. You have to fill your mind with the word of God so that when your reality comes up against what God has revealed to be true about himself, you say, I'm gonna bank all of my life, all of my obedience, all of my hope in what you have said to be true, no matter what. No matter what, no matter what the culture tells me around me, no matter what my friends tell me, no matter what myself tells me, your word above everything. We have to fill our mind with it, fill our heart with it. We have to see what he is like, who he said he is, what he said he will do. And we rest everything of our lives on that. The second thing that you can do to uh, ask God to help you grow in certainty about his promises. Remember your own story. Remember the ways that God has worked in your life. Remember the places where you were far off, hating him, his enemy, where you were running headlong in your own rebellion against him and he broke in and saved you. Not of your own strength, not of your own merit, not of your own work, but because of his gracious love made known to you. Remember that. Remember the places where he's demonstrated his goodness and his faithfulness and his kindness and his mercy towards you. That stirs certainty in us. It builds that in us. The third thing that I want to just encourage you to do is just start. 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 Start putting him in remembrance. Go, you say you're good. I'm going to believe that you're good. Be good to me here. You said that there is no condemnation in Christ. I feel all this condemnation. You said there's not. Help me believe it. Like, stumble into it. It's okay for you to stumble your way through it. I would rather you take the truth of the word and fumble your way in the presence of God into it rather than you wait till you have it all figured out and you never come before him. I was reading a little bit from uh, Charles Spurgeon on, on prayer last night. He has a chapter in one of his books on the throne of grace. And he talks about the beauty of the reality that in Hebrews 4, the author calls the throne of God the throne of grace. And he says, hey, just come in, even in your weakness, even in your fumbling, even in your stumbling in, it's not a throne of harsh criticism. It's not an exacting place for those who are in Christ where he's uh, nitpicking everything you do. It's a throne with a disposition of grace towards you. So just start, just start. Don't wait till you get it all right. Just come in and go, okay, you said you're good. Be good to me. You said that you've demonstrated your love toward me in Christ Jesus. Would you let that be more true to me today? You said that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort those that mourn 
that you would release your power and your presence among your people. Would you do those things? Just start somewhere. Start somewhere. That's ways that we can grow in walking in the certainty of God's promises in these. The second response that I want us to look at is just in the last couple of verses, and we're not going to take much time here. But the second response, a prepared life or a, a life that responds, we just see in verses 10 and following. It's in line with what a lot of what we've seen in Isaiah up to this point. Often in Isaiah, we get these exhortations that come. Hey, it is so certain that God is going to move just start telling people. Just start saying it. Just act like it's done. It's signed. It's sealed. It's delivered. You have no doubt that it's going to happen. So lift up your voice and start telling people that it's going to happen. Lift up your voice and say, this is the truth. This is what's real. This is what is uh, uh, certain in God's heart. That's what we see here. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say this, behold, your salvation comes and his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. The prophet here just says this, one of the ways that we respond to the certainty of God's promises, one of the ways that we seek to relate to these promises is as we encounter them, we begin to, yes, ask God to fulfill them, but then we begin to turn and go, behold, your God. Salvation is coming. We say that. We say that to one another. We say it to our friends, our family members. We say it to our neighbors. We say it to a watching world. We begin to proclaim the truth. God has saved and he is coming. We proclaim that truth and we live proclaiming that truth. And this morning, as we come to the table together, I want us to proclaim that truth. I want us to proclaim the truth. Behold your God. Behold the salvation of your God. As we come to the table this morning and we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the means, the, the only way for us to find salvation before God, what we are doing as a family is running through the streets, building up the highway, going through the gates and saying, behold, our God comes with salvation. Look at his salvation. The son of God taking on flesh, living the life that we could not, dying the death that we deserved because of our sin and our rebellion so that any and all who have faith in him might have salvation, might receive his life, might be welcomed into God's family forever. If you believe that you're a Christian and I want you to come and even in our our embodied action this morning. Go through the gates and declare, behold the salvation of God, his life given for us. The way we take communion at Redeemer, 
As you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balconies. And we have a single serve that's gluten-free over here to my right, to your left. If you are in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we want to ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal is for those who have put their faith, their hope in Jesus Christ alone. This meal doesn't afford you right standing with God. It doesn't um, buy merit or earn favor. What we would ask for you to do this morning is to look to Jesus, to put your faith in him and in him alone. But if you don't, we want to ask that you stay in your seat. We have uh, prayers on cards in the seat back in front of you that would help you maybe come before God and pray this morning. Uh, but for those who are taking this morning, I'm going to pray for us. The servers are going to come forward. And as always, um, we have people in our sanctuary who would love to pray with and for you. If there's a place in your life this morning where you need uh, someone to stand with you and put God in remembrance and say, God, would you be these things to them? Would you fulfill your promises to them? Would you uh, make known more of your goodness or your grace or your love to them? We have, they would be, they're going to be in this sanctuary. They'll have lanyards on. They'd love to stand and pray with and for you. But I'm going to pray for us and then we'll come to the table. Father, we do love you. We thank you that you have given us life in Christ. We thank you for uh, the truth that you have. You are committed to your own work of salvation, that you won't be silent. You will not stop. You will not relent until you bring forth the righteousness of those who you have welcomed in until you bring it forth like a burning torch. So God, this morning as we come to the table and we remember our places of desperate need, our, our places of um, our brokenness, the places where you broke in and while we were still sinners, you gave your life. God, would you meet us? Would you nourish us? Would you remind us of your truth? God, and would you reorient all of our minds and hearts and affections and desires around Jesus Christ, around your purposes? God, would you set us in the place where we would have confidence in us that you are who you said you are and you're gonna do what you said you would do and that we would even be empowered by your spirit to not rest and to give you no rest. God, would you, would you move among us? Would you grant us more of your grace, more of your power, more of your presence? Even as we come and we remember Jesus this morning, we thank you in his name. Amen.